Hello there. You're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to talk about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We will also be discussing The Boy and the Heron, the final work by Studio Ghibli founder and animation legend Hayao Miyazaki. And we have a special guest joining us to discuss this film, Ryan Mayers, returning to the show. Thanks for coming on. Hey, it's me, the boy <laughs> from the Heron. Who's our Heron, Dylan? I guess that'd be me. Mahito! <laughs> <laughs> Love Heck it. yeah. Let's do some news. A24 has recently announced that they're going to try and shift into a more commercial position, be a little bit bigger of a studio. And so they have a string of announcements and upcoming films that are going to help them get to that goal. Alex Garland's Civil War, a new film trailer has released. It's apparently got like a $75 million budget, definitely different than his usual films. And the films that A24 usually puts out, this would definitely be their the biggest budgeted film they have. And it's them, again, trying to tip into the blockbuster space. But obviously, with it being Alex Garland and the subject matter, I mean, they'll still have something art housey about it. But were y'all able to see the trailer for this? I did. I got, I got mixed feelings on it. I think the quality of it looks good, but the the plot of it does not. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. I don't know if I'm interested in what they have to say about America's next civil war. <laughs> Interesting. I, I have not seen that trailer, but uh, I just I don't know. I'm curious to see what's going to happen with A24. I mean, I've always liked how small of a studio they are, and like it seems like it's. You know, they make small movies with a real budget behind them, and I'm interested to see if they can still keep the same feeling going with a bigger film. Exactly, yeah. I am definitely curious about that film. Because, again, Alex Garland, although not all his films are hits for me, I do think they always have something thought-provoking and interesting within them. So whatever his take is on this next Again, as you said, like the second American Civil War, whatever he's going to be doing with that, I think is going to be fascinating. But again, the trailer does make it come off like like a lot of it just does feel like it's some uh, speculative fiction war film. Yeah. But I know there's got to be something deeper for him to be attached to it, for A24 to be backing it. So that's the part that I'm really curious about. And they did have little bits and pieces that were, uh, I thought, really solid the Jesse Plemons scene in particular, mm-hmm. just fantastic. So, well, he's just great. He is absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that part um, I'm looking forward to again, quite a time to release it. It'll be spring 2024 mm-hmm. going into what is again, somehow a very insane election cycle for us as a country. So let's hope it remains speculative fiction, but yeah, we will, we will see how that goes. Um, but quite the timing to release it. H24 also has some new announced films 
they have an adaptation of Death Stranding, the video game by Hideo Kojima, with, of course, a whole lot of mainstream Hollywood actors already in there. Norman Reedus, of course, playing the like main, main character. So that'll be interesting to see. Kojima obviously loves films, loves Hollywood, took a whole bunch of inspiration when he was creating all of his video games, including Death Stranding, but most notably the Metal Gear Solid series. So it's fascinating that he's finally like dipping into uh, film itself and then how they're going to approach it. Like, are all those actors that were lending their faces and doing the motion capture for the video game, are they going to be appearing in it? Are they going to take it in a different direction? That I'm also super curious about, but it is seeming like it's going to be another one of those big budget affairs that A24 wants to get into. Um, And then the third major announcement they had was The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, the most expensive movie actor on the planet, is going to be starring in Benny Safdie's next film. Ryan, I know you're a huge fan of the Safdie brothers. Uh, We have (laughs) Benny Safdie, so it won't be, you know, both brothers going at it, but Benny Safdie uh, will be making Mm -hmm. a film called The Smashing Machine, which is a biopic on MMA fighter Mark Kerr. And it'll be a drama based on him and ups and downs of his career and his life. And The Rock will be starring as Mark Kerr. So, again, I'm wondering what the situation is financially. Because, again, it could have been like a 20 mil plus payday for The Rock to get him to star in this. But imagine The Rock is taking a pay cut so that he can star in a more dramatic film and try to show his acting chops rather than just being the huge action star that he's been. So that is also something I'm interested in seeing him actually trying to do some acting rather than do what he's always been doing as a entertainer, but just in different jungles. Uh, That's kind of something that they they did with the last one. I mean, with uh, Adam Sandler, he he's had a few like dramatic roles, but like Uncut Gems is kind of like the big, very dramatic A24 movie that he had like, to kind of get out of, not to get out of, but like to try something else other than his usual stuff. So it's interesting that like the Shafty brothers are making a habit out of bringing, uh, like bringing those style actors into very dramatic, very serious roles like that. Exactly. So yeah, it'll be very fascinating to see what he does with Dwayne, the rock Johnson. Yeah. I looked up, pan out I looked up Mark Kerr. And he's only four years older than The Rock. It's kind of odd to do a biopic about somebody that is pretty much your same age. That's what I was thinking, too. I mean, the reason they're doing it is just because, I mean, if you look up the pictures of Mark Kerr, mm-hmm. the man is insanely huge. Like, yeah. he's an absolute unit. And then The Rock at this stage, because it's funny, because, yeah, when The Rock, when Mark Kerr was in his career, which was, like, the 2000s, basically, like, late 90s, 2000s, um, The Rock was also a wrestler at that time, but he was much smaller yeah. than he is now. So it's funny that like The Rock at 50 years old is big enough to be portraying Mark Kerr back when he was in his physical prime, which again was like an insane level of mm-hmm. just, yeah, physicality. So that is a fascinating element. It's also possible too. I mean, I would imagine they would have some of his career, but it could be focusing on 
a lot of the aftermath of his career when he is a bit older. So that would make sense for The Rock being this age portraying him. But I mean, yeah, I think The Rock can pull it off. He's he's probably in there again because of the size and his physicality. I guess it still seems odd though, just to make a movie about somebody who's still alive who is just your same age that you're playing. It seems strange, but I mean, do what you get. It just feels like biopics are going to a more extreme length now because they just want to make a movie about Marker, even though he's still alive and is the exact same age pretty much as The Rock. It's like if they made a biopic. It's like if I played Austin Butler in a biopic about Austin Butler. Like he's not that much older than me. It seems it's odd. Weird, like. It's gonna be weird trying to like see him as not the rock. Like yeah. that is one actor I can't really like separate from himself. That too, yeah. It's hard. Yeah, so this would like, be the one I mean, be the, the big challenge for this role is for him to actually disappear into it rather than come off as the rock. Because again, he's playing a fighter, a UFC fighter, so there won't be as much of that showmanship that there would be of a wrestler but there's still that component to it so it's like it's already so close to home of what the rock had done for so much of his life he's got to be able to separate himself from that and really dig into marker the character and become that which i don't know if he can do it he's proven himself as a great action star reliable in that sense but the dramatic acting chops we've never really been able to see him actually pull that off so I'm curious to see if he can do it. Hopefully he can. Either way, A24 and all these new films that they are uh, going with, big A-list stars, big video game adaptations, big blockbusters. It's an interesting direction they're going in. We'll see if they're able to pull that off and then, like you said, Ryan, retain sort of that you know indie spirit that has made them so beloved over this past decade. I hope so. Um, in other news, Godzilla and Kong. <laughs> Godzilla minus one, taken theaters by storm. Great word of mouth hit. But Warner Brothers decided to capitalize on that and release their trailer for Godzilla and Kong. Uh, the New Empire, I believe, is the, the rest of the name for it. Um, and so have you all been able to see that trailer? I haven't seen the trailer. I saw I saw the I, I guess I'm really out of behind on the film news, but I saw the poster for it for the first time today when I was at the theater rewatching the movie we we're going to talk about later. But I actually really enjoyed Godzilla minus one. Uh, I thought it was like phenomenal. And I actually have never seen a Godzilla movie before that. Oh, uh, really? Huh? Tough, tough to admit. I know I'm probably going to get chased down after this, but it was, it was a lot more emotionally resonant than I thought it would be. I really kind of expected a yeehaw shoot the lizard movie, but it managed to be like devastatingly emotional while also being a yeehaw punch the lizard movie. Yeah. Godzilla and Kong, that whole series, that is the uh, yeehaw let's shoot the laser type of thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that the franchise is able to have both sides of it like the one more serious grounded emotionally driven like character driven side of it and then the other one where it's godzilla and kong running together <laughs> in the hollow earth underworld fighting a bunch of oversized apes like that is it's great that the franchise can have that duality to it uh don't were you able to see that trailer 
Yeah, it looks bad. I'm not looking forward to it. I did not like Godzilla versus Kong. I don't think I'm going to like Godzilla and Kong either. The only ones in the franchise that I kind of liked was the original Godzilla from like 2012 or whatever with Brian Cranston and then Kong. Anyway, yeah, whatever. And uh, Kong Skull Island, I thought was also like decent. Other than that, don't care. Uh, Godzilla King of All Monsters was really bad. The uh, Godzilla versus Kong is really bad. And I bet Godzilla and Kong is going to be bad too. Yeah, I mean, it knows what it is at this point, which is a turn your brain off, put popcorn in your mouth, and watch the big CGI creatures attack each other. So that's I wish it was that. I wish it was that. But they, they have to throw in human characters that have no dimension to them who have to have some kind of emotional connection to the monsters when you could just do a CGI fight, and that's all I need. That's all I need, man. I just need the CGI monsters to fight each other. I don't need... I don't need any kind of emotional connection to them. I already care about Godzilla. I already care about King Kong. I don't I don't care about the people. I don't like if you're gonna do it half ass, just don't do it at all. I don't disagree. But they are moving, I think, in that direction of like having less and less of the human characters. Because they the American Kill franchise them. at this point. Kill them all. They know it's just the the monsters we're trying to see. But yeah, Godzilla had a makeover in solidarity with Barbie. He's now rocking a pink spine rather than the blue. So that's fascinating. Um, and then Kong yeah. as well is increasingly getting more and more gadgets. So again, Ryan is this is, it's going to be a whirlwind for you when you go through and watch the, uh, the whole Godzilla King Kong shared universe, the monster verse. I'm going to go watch this new movie with zero preparation. Uh, having only seen Godzilla minus one and ridden the universal King Kong ride. That's the only prep I'll have. That's we could do that should a, be enough. When this new Godzilla comes out, we could do a cinema showdown with Kirk where we try and argue which one is the worst. Oh, that could be fun. He'll probably argue this bad. ride. <laughs> the ride's pretty goddamn bad. He's right. Yeah. That ride is terrible. Oh my god. It's kinda awful. True. Yeah. So- but all right, let us move on to the box office breakdown for December 8th to the 10th. The Boy and the Heron is number one with $13 million, marking the first time I believe that a Miyazaki film and a Studio Ghibli film in general has debuted to the number one spot. Nice. Following behind was The Hunger Games Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes with $9.2 million. Godzilla minus one with $8.5 million. Trolls Band Together, $6 million. Renaissance, a film by Beyonce with 5.4 million in its second weekend, and it had opened up to 21 million. So, a good showing for concert films, but in a post Taylor Swift era, it uh, is not quite as impressive as it could have been. But quite. still did a great job. It opened to number one. So, Disney's recent animated movie Wish opened to or er, per- continued its streak with 5.3 million which is, once again, abysmal for what it's doing. Sorry, Ryan. Look, I've made peace. Okay. Napoleon with 4.1 million. It domestically has just crossed 50 million. Waitress the Musical, 2.8 million. Animal, 2.4 million. And The Shift, 2.1 million. 
the box office predictions for December 15th to the 17th, where Wonka is the big release opening. Mm-hmm. Industry AE projections have it at 30 million to 40 million. So we'll see where that comes in and report on it next week. But we'll move on to the main subject, the boy and the heron. So, Ryan Mayers, famous. Howdy. You, uh, I think we had you way back when we did movie of the week. I think we had you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Do a, a spotlight on one of your favorite movies, which is the Studio Ghibli film. Kiki's, mm-hmm. Kiki's Delivery Delivery Service. Mm-hmm. So two questions. Number one, is that still your favorite all-time film? Or is it just in the top four, the Mount Rushmore at the moment? It has been years. So I will have to admit that is not in my top four anymore. Wow. <gasps> Out of the top four? Knocked down. Not even on the it's Mount Rushmore not, movies. It, and it is no longer, I think, my favorite Ghibli movie even. But is it is a movie that I still, I'll still say that it is one of the most important movies to me. It is my when in when I'm sad break glass kind of movie, but it has moved out of the top four. There is still a Ghibli movie in the top four, the one that I consider my favorite and that I'll definitely be talking about a little bit later as well, The Wind Rises. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my. I don't know. There's, it's always a fight for my top Ghibli movie. It's always between Wind Rises, Only Yesterday, Kiki's, and Porcaroso. But I will. It's it's tough. It's tough to decide. So then, what is? What are your, the other three movies in your? What are the What sad, are the top four now? Is it sad that I have to go to my letterbox to remember because I change it so often? <laughs> no, no, no. Because I do the same thing. It's not sad at all. It's, it's where I keep track. Is on my. It's the only thing I use Letterbox for is keeping list of my favorite movies. Yeah, instead of doing any reviews or at least just starting. Sorry, Ryan. I just want to see it. I just like seeing when people update their thing. Yeah, I don't. Do so that. well, try to. Okay, so your top the four. number one spot is Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Okay, on brand makes sense. On brand, yeah. Can can never really uh, take that out. Uh, the Iron Giant again. Probably will never leave my top four. Uh, very important, very personal movie. The reason why I wanted to study film. Number three is Goodwill Hunting, which nice. I've, I've found myself rewatching and thinking about enough times that it belongs up there. And then The Wind Rises, which I think has most of everything I love about Studio Ghibli. And does most of those things best, with some exceptions. But it's probably the one that I think about the most. Gotcha. All right. Awesome. And that that leads into the second question, which was, as we clearly know from the top four that you have, which has a different studio studio Ghibli movie than the one that you had a couple years ago. That was your number Mm -hmm. one all time. You have quite a relationship with Studio Ghibli. So just talk about that of when you first got exposed to these movies and what they have meant to you over time. So it's an interesting kind of timeline. I first watched, like the first Ghibli movie I ever watched 
was in 2018 at a Fathom event for My Neighbor Totoro. I never grew up with the movies. I never watched them before being in college or the summer before college. So it's a very recent kind of obsession that I started out with these movies. Um, I've kind of immediately fell in love and uh, been obsessed with these movies. I've been, uh, you know, very progressively watching as many of them as I could throughout college. Um, I've not seen the entire Ghibli filmography, but I have seen all of Hayao Miyazaki's movies. Um, it's, it's been an interesting kind of exploration uh, because every, every so often I'll watch one and then that will be my favorite movie for however long it takes me to watch the next one. I mean, it jumped around from, uh, from Kiki's to Totoro to Mononoke to briefly uh, Castle in the Sky. It jumps mm-hmm. around. There's a lot that really, like, that I connect with very strongly. And mm-hmm. I've had these movies for, as just kind of like, like I said, it's like my break class movies. Like if I am just, if I'm sad and I just want to like look at something light and fun, I'll watch Porco Rosso. If I'm burning out, I'll watch Kiki's. If I want to feel like I actually do have dreams and they can actually happen, I'll watch The Wind Rises. Uh, they're very, you know, important films to me. And there's like I've, some of the most important people to me as well have a deep relationship with it too. Like my my girlfriend is a huge Tito Ghibli fan as well. Her One of her favorite movies of all time is Howl's Moving Castle, so... We've watched that a few times since we started dating a little over two years ago. And so it's very personal to me and to my, to my family. It's, that's a, it's really just been a huge part of the last four years for me. All right. Awesome. I have a different like timeline than you. So you have a deeper well, I think of, seeing more of the Studio Ghibli films than I have at this point. But for whatever reason, I just don't, I don't know if it was on somewhere or if somehow a DVD got brought into the house. But I remember distinctly watching Spirited Away as a young kid. And obviously a lot of it was going over my head and I didn't know what was happening. Um, In certain moments too, it were quite disturbing and creepy for me, like as a young kid. But I remember that being my first exposure to it. Um, and I was certainly like, yeah, very uh, taken away by just the imaginative power that it had, beautiful animation. So I'd seen that. And then uh, one of my best friends as a kid loved House Moving Castle. So we would watch that pretty frequently too. Um, and so those films I had seen quite a bit. And then I think since you were... Uh, in my first time doing that podcast or somewhere along the way, somewhere since when I met you and we became friends, Kiki's delivery service was put on my radar because you were always talking about it. And it was your like number one at that point. So then I watched that and very much enjoyed it and loved it. Um, And then, so there are a few other films that I've seen like portions of like against one of those things where Totoro, I just, I don't know if I've ever actually sat down and watched beginning to end, but I've like seen so many bits and pieces of it. 
that it feels mm-hmm. like it's been a film I watched. Um, but there are some pretty glaring blind spots I know I still have of uh, like Wind Rises. I haven't seen that yet. Um, or Princess Mononoke. So I haven't fully completed my Studio Ghibli watch through at this point. But it's great that they are much more accessible now than they used to be. I think they should still hopefully all be on HBO Max. Unless Zaslav and his never-ending campaign to destroy HBO and HBO Max and Warner Brothers has somehow bungled that deal and they're now off of it. But last I knew, the most of the Studio Ghibli collection is on HBO Max. So yeah, I'm definitely excited to continue my journey with it um, at some point. I think we had talked about this way long ago and we should actually follow up on it. We were going to do a cinema showdown on Studio Ghibli mm-hmm. um, or something like that or just some sort of overall Studio Ghibli episode. Again, I felt like, I think I brought it up some time before, of like, I don't know, Cinema Showdown for a Studio, Go- Studio Ghibli uh, episode doesn't feel quite right for, as you said, Ryan, like just the way that it is often a cozy warm blanket and all of that. Um, I know, putting in a debate format seems weird because you can connect with so many films in so many different ways at different times in your life. Um, so it really is a subjective experience of like what is the one that you connect with more at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. But either way, at some point, we should definitely uh, follow up on a Studio Ghibli thing, and Ryan will definitely have to have you back for that. Um, Absolutely. Dylan, what about your journey with Studio Ghibli thus far? Mine is more similar to yours, Ryan Hill. Uh, I remember... I, I was too young to go see Spirit Away in theaters. I was one years old, one year old at the time. And but my brother was old enough, I believe. So I think he went with my family, or at least my dad, to go see Spirit Away and they really enjoyed it. So it became like a VHS that we would have in the house that we would watch. And we would have VHSs of that, Kiki's Delivery Service, Castle in the Sky, and Howl's Moving Castle. And we would watch those all the time, those four, just over and over again. So I've seen those four more than any other ones. Uh Ponyo came out a little bit later. I think I saw that. I might have seen that in theaters, or maybe I just saw that afterward, but I didn't remember it until I watched it again as an adult. And I remember seeing Secret World of Arietti in theaters. Uh, I remember hearing about The Wind Rises, but I, I never watched it. But the four movies that I grew up on, it's like one of those things where like you watch a movie you haven't seen in a long time, but you used to watch when you were a kid all the time, and it unlocks that memory of of watching it, those four movies, watching those will do that to me in the same way that watching Toy Story or SpongeBob or something like that will do it. Mm-hmm. So I grew up on those four and then expanded a little bit, but not much. I definitely need to watch more. My gaps in Studio Ghibli are similar to yours, Ryan, where I haven't seen, uh, I have not seen Princess Mononoke. I haven't seen Wind Rises. I haven't seen Neighbor Totoro in a long time. I was probably a child when I watched that one. Never seen Grave of the Fireflies. Never seen uh, Porco Rosso or uh, the Return, the Cat Returns, or anything like that. And I would like to, but I just never find the time. There's just so many. But I would, I would like to one day, one day. What's the one with the raccoons? Palm Poco. Palm Poco. That's the one I want to watch really bad. It's such a weird movie, and I don't know if you guys have any opinions on the subs versus dubs debate but if you do end up watching in english it has one of the most interesting castings uh it's uh 
it's like, oh gosh, why can't I remember the name? The guy, uh, Mr. Krabs, the voice of Mr. Krabs. Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown. It's Clancy Brown and J.K. Simmons, like <laughs> leading the movie as raccoons. Interesting. And that's great. It's amazing. I think it's hearing both of you talk about your Ghibli journeys kind of confirms something that I've always like thought is like, there's definitely like the more common and the more like well-known kind of Ghibli canon. And then there's sort of the rest of the movies. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there are the five or six really core movies. There's like, like Mononoke, Spirited Away, Totoro, Kiki's, Howl's, the, the, I'm probably leaving out someone's favorite movie. There's those like really core central ones. And then there's uh whisper of the heart cat returns, uh, Arietti, ocean waves. Uh, there's those like lesser ones. And yeah. it's always interesting to hear like people's opinions of those ones of like, even of the ones that kind of in the middle, like Pompoco and Porco Rosso. Like, it's always interesting to hear kind of which ones of the non, you know, the non canonized ones people gravitate towards. For sure. I think part of that, I mean, a lot of the ones you mentioned there were notably ones that Miyazaki did not create. Yeah. So I think that's part of a, a thing too, which I don't know how exactly that came about. Cause yeah, all the like major, major ones you associate with Studio Ghibli, they're all the Miyazaki ones. I think only Grave of the Fireflies would be the one that you would be like, oh, a major Studio Ghibli one that's like part of the canon or at least close enough to it that isn't Miyazaki. Um, Isai Takahata, who mm-hmm. he actually also directed one of my Ghibli top fours. He was he did only yesterday, which I think thousand percent needs to be talked about more and appreciated more. That's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, mm-hmm. And if you really like, even want to cut it down even more, they're kind of like the three main directors who be like. Hayao Miyazaki, Isao Takahata, and Goro Miyazaki. And then there are four directors who have each directed one movie for the the studio. And they're not all that great. They're usually the kind of forgotten ones. But Mm -hmm. I just watched Arietti for the first time the other day. And that is a a first and only directing credit for Ghibli for... I can't remember the name of the director, but that was, that felt the most like kind of core to Ghibli out of yeah. the other ones that I've seen. I remember seeing that one in theaters as a kid and it's very much like, it's more straightforward than a lot of Ghibli films. So it's very like low uh, barrier of entry to get in and kind of enjoy it. And it's very much like delightful when you watch it. Very light and very easy. So it, it, it is in the vein of like something like Kiki's Delivery Service or or Castle in the Sky, where it's just very charming. Which is or good. Like the, because there definitely are a lot of Ghibli movies that can be beautiful, yet kind of inscrutable and difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like The Boy and the Heron. Yeah. Great segue back into Boy and the Heron there. Through Podcaster it's, Spirit. So, it's not my first podcast. <laughs> So the the uh, release of this film in Japan notably did not have any marketing, any trailers. Mm-hmm. I think it just had one poster. 
and they just put it out there because Miyazaki is so well known and beloved and revered that they're like, yeah, people are just going to go and see a Miyazaki film. And they did. It was like obviously a huge smash hit over there. Um, unfortunately, they didn't carry on that same spirit in the United States. So there were trailers and images and all this. So we couldn't go in completely blind. But I did want to mm-hmm. ask like, how limited did you keep yourself? Did you watch the trailer? Did you see some of those images before going into it? Like how blind were you going into Boy and the Heron? Yeah, I watched the trailer. I was I was like, knowing that it's a Miyazaki film and knowing that it's the last one, it's going to be something that is not as straightforward, kind of like Spirit Away. So I felt like if I watched the trailer, nothing would get spoiled. And I was right. I watched the trailer and I learned nothing about what the movie is going to be about. And I was like, great. All right. I have a feel for like what it's going to feel like and what it's going to look like, but I have no semblance of what the plot is. No idea. The That's exact what I same experience. It was, I mean, it was a trailer. It, like the trailer is enough to get me very interested, but I mm-hmm. no idea what was going on. Yeah. For me, I did not watch the trailer. I think we said on the show at one point when it had released, I, Clicked on it, went straight to the end to see the release date, and then clicked off of it. Because I was like, that's all I need to know. I just need to know the release date. Um, But, of course, again, just so many times, anything that talks about the film is going to have like a thumbnail or an image uh, from the film. And so I saw a lot of the different, like the, the boy, the heron itself, like a lot of these different images. So, again, wasn't able to be completely blind as I would have liked to have been. But... Yeah, I can see that not necessarily being like a worry that the trailer is going to spoil anything. Um, and especially for yeah, Miyazaki film anyway, it's more about the experience and the feeling going through it rather than the plot. So yeah, that makes sense. Did y'all see it in sub or dub? Or did you have a game plan before going into it of which one you wanted to watch? I have seen it in both, actually. Uh First time I watched it on the weekend of was uh, was subbed in Japanese. Um, I I went with uh, with my girlfriend and her sister, and uh, her sister is a very hardcore uh, like anime fan and has a very strong opinion on the debate of subs versus dubs. A sub. So we, very much so. So we watched it in Japanese the first time and had a great experience. I mean, obviously amazing performances. Like you there there definitely is a reason why people prefer the original voice recordings, it's because they're great. Um I watched it today in English about two hours ago. I got out two hours ago and uh also really good performances. I think the more, the later a, a Ghibli movie is, like the more recent it is, the better the dub usually is. Like I will trust most like later Ghibli dubs. Um, Wind Rises is a good dub. Um, mm-hmm. Arietti was good. This was insane. Yeah. I, I am a bit of a, I'm a semi uh, subtitle pure anime purist. Uh, I cannot watch dubs 
unless it's a Studio Ghibli movie. So any kind of anime that I watch, it has to be subbed. Even even old, if I ever got into Dragon Ball, Ryan, I know you grew up on the dub of Dragon Ball. You would have to do the dub. I mean, that's even, even if I where it's enough. like give it the dub because some of those voices are iconic. However, it is. <laughs> Yeah, you wouldn't be watching the original like Dragon Ball Z releases, so it wouldn't you wouldn't have to wade through a lot of the yeah terrible dubbing work that's in there. But yeah, I would say for that one, you would do dub. But the biggest that's- recent example would be like Attack on Titan, where when I was trying to show some friends, we didn't have Hulu available to us. We only had the Netflix, and that was in dub. And I was like, this is atrocious like yeah it's insane the level of quality difference so it's hit or miss for sure i think some the dub you can get away with it and watch it and be like this is how it is again i think dbz at this point um because they've been doing it for decades now like they're locked into the role they have the iconic voices um but some other ones like attack and time it's like no you gotta watch that subbed or else you're not getting the full experience like it, it would just not measure up in any any way but yeah, growing up, when I watched all of these movies, all of the Studio Ghibli movies that I grew up with, they were on VHS purchased in, I think you probably, well, it was VHS, so you, there's no way to change the option. So I think it was 100% dub every single time, no matter what. Like, there was no way to buy a sub VHS unless you went to, like, a special market or something. But my parents were going to do that. They wanted the dubs anyway. So I grew up on the dubs for Howl's Movie Castle and Spirited Away. I've, I have never seen them in sub, like any of those older Studio Ghibli movies. I'd be willing to, but I just... I'm so it's so ingrained in my brain that when I watch a Studio Ghibli movie, I expect to watch it in the dub. That I have I don't know if I've ever seen any Studio Ghibli movie subbed, just because I'm I just, it's just what I expect. So most of the time, if I ever click an anime, I will watch subbed just because I know that's how it's meant to be watched. But a Studio Ghibli, I feel like because they have so many A list stars in it, and because the whatever the English team is that is in charge of directing the voice acting does such a good job. I know that I'm usually in for a good time with the the English dub. Plus, I mean, you watch House Movie Castle, you're watching it for Christian Bale. Like, come on. <laughs> of course. Sophie. Like, come on. You have to. I kind of watch it with Billy Crystal, though. That count? Oh, uh, that's true. Yeah. That whole movie, <laughs> that whole dub is great in that movie. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. What a good cast. Yeah, they definitely take special care to get some amazing dubs for the Studio Ghibli films. And this yeah, one is sure. different. Of course, I mean Christian Bale coming back in. Robert Pattinson though is the, killing it. Oh the my god! Here, I mean, yeah, he was insane. And this is his first voice acting credit, isn't it? Yeah, I believe so. What a what a what an incredible performance for him! Like I heard some like onset always, stories about just like the preparation and notes and everything that he was taking for this role. Like he was like all in on it, which is uh, is nice to see a. Uh, it's nice to see like an A-list uh, visual actor going to a voice acting role, trying not to bring their own voice, but bring an actual character voice in it. Mm-hmm. It's really nice to see people not being Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So true. Although Chris Pratt gave a little bit of an Italian voice for Mario. He said, let's uh, go. Not enough. It was not <laughs> enough. <laughs> You're not excited for Garfield? Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I'll probably see it just so I can hate it with uh, empirical justification. Total clarity, yeah. Which defeats the purpose. Mondays, am I right? <laughs> so, hmm. 
the boy and the heron. So <laughs> Ryan got sub and dub. Dylan and I did the dub experience. Mm-hmm. So as for initial impressions, what did y'all think of what is meant to be? As long as he stays in retirement this time, although we've heard that tune from him before. Um, but this is supposed to be his final work, his one song. So what did y'all think about it? Your initial impressions, Ryan? My initial impressions were that I am really dumb and this is very confusing. I agree uh, with Ryan Mayers. <laughs> it was, I think my first Letterboxd review was something dumb. It was like, this movie is an orb and I need to ponder it more. Like, I was following it for a while and like I was able to like kind of do that thing I did with like Howl's Moving Castle the first few times I watched it, which is just like sit in the vibes and sit in the art and just be immersed without having to follow the logical consistency or like have some PhD level dissection of it afterwards. Mm -hmm. I was able to get that through, but then like afterwards I'm thinking is like, why was there a space wizard? Why, what, what's going on? That's, this is weirdly had a lot of birds. Um, It was, you know, I, I keep using the word inscrutable. Like it's like, it is something that I did not understand. And I don't know if I still do, but I have interesting second watch thoughts. Yeah, I definitely don't understand it at all. But at the same time, I've seen Spirited Away dozens of times, and I still really don't understand Spirited Away either. Because when I think about Spirited Away, you have the basic plot of Chihiro is trying to find her parents. And that's like the basic plot of it. She's just trying to find her parents and get out. But then there's so many other layers to it that you're trying to peel back all one at a time that I just don't understand it. In the same way that this movie is, he's trying to get his mother or stepmother back. At base level, that's what he's trying to do. His real mother's dead. He's moving in with his stepmother, who we find out later is also his aunt, which we didn't know. And he's trying to find his stepmother. Okay, that's I can understand that. Everything beyond that in a way that is even more complicated than Spirited Away. It feels like there's a it feels like there's a whole world that has been built here very painstakingly. And they only show me the bare surface of it and don't let me get in deeper. But it feels like there is something deeper there. And I wish I could see what it is, but they don't let me see it. I feel the same as y'all. I have mixed feelings with it just because I feel like there's so much more that I need to parse out in relation to like what was going on there, what were the metaphorical meanings behind a lot of the things that we Mm -hmm. saw. Like for instance, yeah, you brought up the high level of birds in this film. Love love the amount of birds. Titular hair, the parakeets. And I did love a lot of these birds, but you know, there's something clearly going on with that. What was the meaning there? There are a lot of different, like the, the stone, the sentient stone um, that I guess is part of the tower at that point, or they were in a different part of the tower, things like that. Um, that to me left me wanting to try and decipher it a bit just to get to the bottom of what was being said here. But that sort of encapsulates the, the difficulty of some of the Miyazaki works, mainly like spirit away would be the other one that it's so beautiful and visually arresting, but there's also not a clear logic to it a lot of the time, or at least not one that is easily detectable on the surface. You have to ponder a lot more and 
sort mm-hmm. of think about it. But especially in the first watch through, I'm not sure that that's what Miyazaki wants you to be doing. I think he wants you to be carried off on the discovery ride that the character is also going through. And so on that level, like it does work. Like I'm enchanted and amazed by the gorgeous animation and all that stuff that's happening here. There's a lot of cool world building elements that were shown throughout, but there does get to be a point where I'm, I'm wanting that satisfaction of the pieces falling into place and Mm-hmm. We don't get that here. And again, no. I, I know that's not entirely the point, but there's just, there's that part of me that's always wanting to connect the dots. Yeah, um, I get that. So it's leaving me like, okay, there's a lot there. It was dense. Do I fully understand all of it? No. And so that is that preventing me from having um, as strong of a reaction to this, um, like a positive reaction to it as some of the other works, possibly. So I think. I definitely have had a lot of the same kind of comparative thoughts between this and Spirited Away. Those being the two confusing movies, like the two like famously confusing movies. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this is probably not going to be like a groundbreaking revelation, but I think you're definitely supposed to be confused in the sense of like, look where the characters are and look who they are and look what's going on to them. Spirited Away, you have... Uh, like a young girl who's kind of like lost in a pretty terrifying setting, like the like a an amusement park that's completely abandoned and then filled with spirits and ghosts. It's terrifying, and she does not know what's going on. She does not know her own agency. She doesn't know how to get back, and she feels kind of like ignored and unlistened to by her parents when she tries to express this fear. And then this one is about a young boy who lives in a country that is being torn by the Second World War, uh, a con- uh, who just lost his mother in a sudden tragedy, who just moved, who just found out that he has a new mother and it's his aunt. Uh, interesting choice, Dad. Uh, and that she is pregnant. So that turmoil, that just like kind of mix up of what's going on and the emotional processing of all that kind of like, I don't know, how is that turmoil that much different from the turmoil of I'm in this weird parallel universe's world where I'm fighting Dave Batista, the king of the parakeets. And, you know, my great granduncle is a wizard, not a wizard from space, but a wizard about space. It's weird. I don't know. It's turmoil. It's confusing. Wizard for space. Wizards for space. Yes. Wizard by means of space. Like it's a it's a tumultuous kind of st- like time. It's they're confused. He's going through. He's processing it, and you know he doesn't understand it. So maybe we don't need to. Yeah, my biggest problem with the boy and the heron when comparing it to Spirited Away is that both of them are confusing. Both of them require a lot of thought to understand the world building that's going on. But the basic plot of Spirited Away, I can follow and understand and not need to connect too many dots with the world that's being built in order to understand it. So if I don't see anything deeper into that world, it doesn't affect the emotional story that Chihiro is going on through it as she's trying to find her parents and like be okay with the change that's going on in her own personal life. 
with the boy and the heron, I feel like me understanding Mahito's journey into accepting his stepmother and accepting the death of his mother has to do a lot with the world that's being built there and like what he's experiencing. And I don't know if enough of the dots are connected for me to understand how it relates to his journey and how him being in this world is so important to what we're supposed to be seeing. Whereas I, I, as much as I love it and I love how pretty it is and how like impactful a lot of the imagery is like the Wara Wara floating up to become people and being attacked by the Pelicans with the, uh, all the images of like space and like big blowing fields and all the ships that are sailing in the water that are ghosts and all of the the spirit people that are paddling all of those like great images of like life and death and moving on and acceptance and things like that i don't know how it relates to mahito's journey specifically yeah i would agree with with that it felt like there were supposed to be intentional parallels between the things and the people and the spirits that he's encountering in that fantasy landscape um, that is helping him along in his journey of processing the grief, right? And working through all the turmoil that his life has plunged into. But some of those things, yeah, weren't immediately coming to mind of what they could mm-hmm. be representing. Um, like the, the Warawar that you mentioned, um, which such cute little creatures. Oh my God, dude. Designed incredibly. So cute. Very, very simple and straightforward, but just so lovable. Like, amazing. So you have them, and they're needing to eat. So they bring in that big old fish, cut it up, and then feed the little warawara so they can get big enough to start floating up to the top and be born. And so that's what we're sort of hearing there. And so that fascinated me, like that world-building component. But it leaves me wondering because of this like whole tower and this fantasy world and whatnot is a place outside of time, but it's constructed by the grand uncle who Mm -hmm. entered into the tower. Like, is that meant to be this like just other world afterlife sort of thing? Like are the Warawara were, are they created or are they born in that fantasy world from the spirits that have died or that have been lost? previously and then now they're just making their way back up to the surface because we see there's like some connection there of like the parakeets for instance when they start flying out of the door um and they pass mojito's uh his father then they turn into regular birds regular parakeets and they're just floating around so there's like some connection between what's in the fantasy world and what's in the real world the warawara that are floating up in order to become born and join the uh, real world, the world above. I was like, what What exactly is that supposed to represent? Because it felt like, again, this like tower in the fantasy world and whatnot was a pretty self-contained thing to Mito's journey. But that component yeah. made it seem like it was a much bigger thing. And this is just one, like Mahito and his journey and getting in there is one small fraction of it. But then we see the whole thing is built upon like his granduncle and him building this... Uh, tower of the toy blocks and so that was very focused to mojito and so i'm like i i don't know this world at parts seems very expansive and at parts seems very specific to mojito and trying to be 
uh, this like allegory for what he's going through with the grief. And just because they weren't meshing well with me, I was, I was confused about that. Um, mm. And like how much of it were supposed to be taken as, Oh, it's a fun, random, cute little creature that he's seeing in this fantasy world versus what is this standing in for? Or how is this actually helping him to process the grief and come to terms with it? So that, that was my issue because we see him see all these things and interact with them a little bit, but never at any point did it click with me of how, you know, in engaging with the Warawara or dealing with those parakeets or anything like that actually helped him to process the stuff with his mother um, or come to terms with like the new status of his family. So maybe further watches and rewatches will illuminate that for me. I don't know if Ryan, you have any additional insight seeing it a second time, if any of those things were starting to become a little bit more clear. I do have some thoughts and first I kind of just like want to kind of get out of the way this, the first really stupid thought I had about the, or, or when I first saw the movie, uh, Ghibli movies always have like adorable little spirit creatures, right? Like mm-hmm. every single, pretty much every single one. And these ones look a lot like the forest spirits from Princess Mononoke with one critical difference is that these ones had no butts and the ones in Mononoke very clearly had butts. So I, it's, you know, it really makes you think like, where did that decision come from? What happened between the years, between years where spirits could and could not have butts? Like that's, been rolling around my mind and I just, I can't stop thinking about it. Like who, there had to have been that conversation, right? Like they had to talk about that. They had to decide butts or no butts. Hayao Miyazaki draws the first Wada Wada to like show his team. And they're like, wow, it looks just like the, the forest spirits from Princess Bonaluck. And he goes, no, no, no butts. Turn it around. Turn it around. <laughs> there was no behind. There was only Wada Wada. <laughs> but like jokes aside, I I think that scene is one of the images that has stuck with me the most. Like, mm-hmm. like that that's this movie's kind of like beautiful scene is like them rising yeah. and like that whole like the, the 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 spiraling columns of them rising to the world above. Um my thoughts about it, my kind of like if I had to analyze it about the entire scene from the gates to the, uh, to the end of that is, uh, the, the water are like really, they need, they need to be protected. They're very kind of like weak. They're kind of helpless. So they need to be protected. They're like baby sea turtles trying to make it to the ocean. Exactly. And they got all these predators coming at them all these things I want to stop them, but they're just trying to be like, they're just trying to live their life and be born. The water, water. And I think my guess, and I have very little confidence in this, like in this kind of dissection, but this is the best I think I can do is that it's kind of showing that uh, it's kind of helping him to trust Kiriko mm. and trust that she is 
a caring person and a caretaker. Because that's someone who Maito kind of doesn't really trust for the entire movie. Uh, kind of like disregards. But it shows her as like capable, cool, and caring. That she's able to feed for, feed and provide for and take care of the water water. And when they are attacked by the pelicans, she does like everything she can to help. But then who comes and is like is actually able to fully protect them is his mother. So it's kind of showing, I guess it's kind of trying to show Kiriko as a caretaker as well, as someone he can trust, a part of his new life that he can still get maternal protection from. That's the best I can think of. Um, I just, the only thing I know for sure is that it was a very pretty scene, but that's kind of what I was thinking. Gotcha. No, yeah, I like that that idea because that relationship with Kiriko specifically was one that I was also pondering and that does make sense. That that would be, you know, one of the, the maids or the grannies, I guess is how they refer to them in that house. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really want to deal with any of them unless it's to somehow help him out. So he like did the one thing with the cigarettes for the one dude. Um, but for the most part, yeah, he wanted to stay away from them. Uh, and so if that seeing the younger version of Kiriko doing all this, like fishing for those war war and then trying to defend them helps him realize that she's someone that can be kind and helpful to him as well that seems like it can make sense i just don't know that we see much of him like actually engaging with that like he finds out i can't remember exactly when he finds out that that's kiriko um but obviously he's like trying to find natsuko his stepmother but kiriko is also technically in there just like that younger version i guess um and yeah he didn't seem too worried about finding her or rescuing her um at some point he like takes the the totem of her but i don't know if he ever did that with the understanding that it'll bring her back because there were the other totems of the other like grandmas as Mm -hmm. well but obviously they weren't actually in that world so i don't know i could have put two and two together that oh if i take this out into the real world that'll bring her back specifically rather than trying to bring the young version of Kiriko out into the real world again so yeah I like that idea for sure I was just wondering if I know there's enough in the actual story after he first encounters Kiriko and then moves on with the heron to the next part of that adventure um, where he sort of doesn't think on Kiriko again after that point um, well, the Kiriko who he meets in the, like within the world of the tower is, you know, seems to know what's going on, know her way around, know what's happening. So mm-hmm. I think he, I guess he could look pro- just trust her to like succeed and know where to go and know what the rules are. And if not, I feel like it might, it might be a bit of a write-off, but this is a movie that obeys dream logic. Like it's just the the logic of whatever situation that's happening at the moment is valid. So 
maybe he knew that the totem would bring her back, or at least that it would offer him some protection from her. Uh, protection provided by her. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. It's possible, because she says that she puts the totems around him to, to watch over him. It's possible he takes that one totem because he wants her to watch over him as he continues his journey mm-hmm. without her. And then just coincidentally, it also brings her back. Mm-hmm. Which is just like a lucky. <laughs> He's like, glad that worked out. Yeah, right. He had it, yeah. He like put it back in the pocket and then she like springs from it in there. Um, so yeah, he thought like, well, she's gone, but I have the totem at least. Um, and then the happy revelation that she comes back is in there. Yeah. Well, the other uh, Kiriko, like the young Kiriko goes into the same door as Himi at the end. So it's not the same Kiriko. Well, and that was the other thing too of like, oh, they're, this is a place outside of time, that tower. And so yeah. the younger version of Himi and of, well, yeah, the mother and Kiriko go back to that door, which is the same timeline, but just an earlier version, I guess. Mm-hmm. Which again, the question of like, were they consciously going into that? tower as kids like in the the younger version um well, they, they say in the story that lady himi returns a year after her disappearance with no memory so they said what, whatever they they the one of the grannies is talking to the father mahito's father and he says that uh lady himi when she disappeared for a year she came back with no memory of ever being gone and then at the end of the heron says, do you remember what happened there? Mahito says, yes. And he says, it's better to forget. Most people don't remember. Yeah. He's like, okay. yeah, you'll forget at some point. Yeah. So- and then you, you definitely see uh, old Kiriko knowing that, you know, that tower is bad news. Mm-hmm. So it makes you wonder if she does have any memory from within it, or if that's just because of the outer world experience of losing Lady Himi for a year. Yeah, probably the outer experience one. Because, yeah. I mean, I don't know. She was having a ball in the uh, tower land. I mean, young Kiriko yeah. had it locked down. Um, but yeah, the some of the other important things I wanted to point out was the confrontation with Natsuko, where he is brought by Himi to where she's about to deliver the baby. And then they're in there and these like paper streamers or whatnot are flying about everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, hurricane force winds attacking them with it. And then she's very much angry with Mahito and rejecting him. And does she say at one point she says like, I hate you. Uh-huh. I think so. Yeah. And he's desperately trying to be like, come with me. We got to go. He's calling her mother. mother. So first time in the movie. Exactly. So we get that. And again, it's like I see what the shape of the character arc is meant to be of like him processing grief and like coming to terms with this is how life is now and I got to be okay with it and happy with it. Um, Mm -hmm. Just we can like move on and accept the new reality. Mm -hmm. But his adventure within the tower fantasy world, I don't know what pushes him to get to this point like when he's saying mother here like is it an act of desperation or is it him like seeing her as a mother because they haven't really interacted throughout this whole time of him being in the fantasy world so like why would he have that change of heart in relation to who she is um same with a little later on when he's given that choice of 
stay here, be the new wizard, and build the tower. Um, I was like, is it really a dilemma for him? Because throughout this whole adventure in the fantasy world, he's never really seemed to be enjoying his time. Like he's just sort of on a one track mission trying to get to Natsuko and all these cool things are happening around him, but he's not like enjoying it. Like this could be a thing where it's, Oh, it's a beautiful escape from the turmoil that he's been facing in the real world. And he wants to stay here, but he never really seems like he does. So the dilemma he's given at the end to, Oh, stay in this fantasy world and don't go back to reality and don't confront reality versus actually confronting it. I'm like, it didn't feel as meaningful of a choice that he has to do because I never really believed that he would do anything other than just go back to the real world. So for the first one that you brought up for the, for the scene in the delivery room mm -hmm. that um, I think the two thoughts I had for that were him calling her mother and realizing that he does genuinely care about her beyond just her being important to his dad, which is what he said throughout the movie is that she's someone important to his dad, not to him. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of him realizing how important she is to him already. Right. When she calls, when she says she hates him, right. She, he doesn't want to lose another mother and he realizes that he wants her to, care for him which she already does after the attentiveness that she gave to him when he was first injured uh, she wants he wants her care and he cares about her and realizes that after the sting of her saying she hates him so that's what reveals it to him and her violent kind of rejection of uh of him right there uh, she's she's sick. She he's gone missing like every day since he's been there. He just wanders off like all the time, and he's been injured at school. He's not adjusting well. He's like everything's going wrong, and she is also grieving her sister. Is the real thing that like clicked for me that like she is also in a tumultuous emotional state so that that's why i think she ended up going to the forest or to the to the tower and that's why i think she didn't want to go back is because in the tower where she can just like stay there forever and just not worry about real world real emotions stay with silly tower logic that's an easier thing to do an easier way to escape than to think about actual grief actual loss actual war Gotcha. I think that makes sense for her. Yeah, wanting to stay behind. Um, but again, I, I just wish there was a little bit more of some interaction between Mahito and her in the Tower Realm or just something there that would push him along to wanting to... And maybe, I don't know, is it a cultural thing or something like that? But it's like, I can see him caring for her because that's his aunt. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, that's already your family. Um, but they're making it specifically a thing of like, oh, him accepting her as his mother. And so him getting to that point at that moment, I just didn't 
see how he had evolved into that point after rejecting her pretty soundly throughout the rest of it. He's had the same mission this whole time of like, Oh, I got to rescue her because she is important to my dad. Um, And maybe partially he was like, Oh, I'm the one that sort of reintroduced this tower thing. So her getting lost in here is personally my responsibility. So him having that same mission entirely makes sense. If he were to, be caring for her and being like, like, please let me help you. That'd have been great. And then after this point, if they had had some more time interacting with each other and they were able to come to that uh, understanding of each other, and then he can truly see her as, you know, a new mother, um, which again, I think is a, a bit weird. Maybe that's another cultural element to it, but I know him calling her mother and treating her like that. Um, feels off, especially when they get in the Rody family. He's already like her nephew. That's his aunt. So I feel like there's a strong enough connection there. But if it's about accepting her as his new mother, I would have liked that to come from a bit more of their like interaction with each other or a bit more of him like seeing the painstaking links she's willing to go to care for him and maybe seeing her going through that grief process. So her lashing out at him, I think, like, was a very striking scene. Like, it was hitting the emotional beats I think it needed. I just didn't, for me, it didn't connect why he would then jump to seeing her as the mother. And that'd be like, oh, no, she's rejecting me in this way. Similar to how I've been rejecting her. Now I will accept her as my new mother. I don't know. It didn't, it didn't ring true for me in that moment. Um, yeah. But, yeah, any other points to Mahito and his character and his journey or the, the overall film itself that y'all want to comment on? Oh, well, I promised you guys I would mention something about The Wind Rises and this movie. the uh, mm-hmm. Both of Hayao Miyazaki's farewell swan songs. Um, I, at first did not like this as much as The Wind Rises as a final movie the first time I watched it. I thought The Wind Rises felt like very much like a director's movie, like a movie in a dire- in, late in a director's career, like a movie made by a director with maturity and experience and understanding of the medium. Whereas this one, while beautiful and well-crafted and fascinating, did not affect me in the same way that the wind rises does. Didn't mm-hmm. have the, you know, the the subtlety or the poignancy. The second time around, I do like this as his farewell. Uh, just because of the themes that I was able to start to pull apart in it, the themes of like, the themes of letting go in order to allow healing. The themes of um, the themes of letting something be beautiful and still be lost. The themes of uh, caring about those who are important to you, and even just from a more metatextual point, I'm more happy with his final film being a fantasy because that is what he is best at. What he's known for is fantastical, wild movies and. While The Wind Rises is beautiful and has some kind of like dreamlike elements, it's not really a fantasy in the same way as 
something like Spirited Away or Mononoke. So I think this is a really, I think this is a better encapsulation of his career, even if it took some time to really fall in love with. Well said. Yeah, I have nothing else really to say about the boy in the hair other than I need to see it again and probably again after that just to try and wrap my head around it because it is definitely confusing and intriguing at the same time because there's something there that I don't understand but that is understandable and that makes me want to watch it more to try and understand it. Right. Yeah, I think there's definitely, I mean, with a master like Miyazaki, there's definitely a whole bunch of intentionality behind the things he chooses to do. So there's just, there's another watch through, I think. Yeah, it's mandatory for understanding a little bit more of the boy in the heron and what he's trying to accomplish with it. Then hopefully that emotional journey that we go on, which again, I mean, we can all sort of recognize that it's dealing with grief and with moving on and with letting go. Um, But how exactly all the little beats within this journey that Mahito goes on, the characters that he interacts with, um, how all of that fits together to allow him to reach that point of being okay with what has happened and being able to let go. Um, I would just love to see that picture get filled in a little bit more on future viewings. But and I don't know about you guys, but that that's exciting, isn't it? Like having the having the opportunity to have a movie that you can enjoy, but that you can also still have so much to get out of. Like I'm excited to watch this more and to see what else I can get. Like it feels like there's uncharted territory even after everything I've gotten out of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think certainly with Miyazaki more than many than maybe any other director, he leaves you with a film, but you can come back to it so many times and get a completely different experience with it more things can be unlocked so yeah this may be his final film potentially again we will see but his final film will offer many many different films all in one and many times that we go back and revisit it more things will again come clear to us um and maybe they don't and maybe it still allows on an emotion level and experiential level it still gives us such a fulfilling uh, watch. So yeah, definitely it's a great way to look at it um, that we have so much to gain from future viewings and that can only come from a true master like Miyazaki. So maybe we'll understand it in time for eight years from now when he does his next final movie. That's true. We can, we can reconnect and be like, okay, so what did it actually mean? (laughs) Did we figure it out? Um, so we'll be like, oh, that's how you live. <laughs> exactly. And by that point, I mean, we'll have Miyazaki on the show as a guest. So we'll be able to ask him directly. <laughs> and I'll be able to speak fluent Japanese, Japanese by then. So it'll be very easy exactly. to, to get in contact. Yeah. All right. Can you guys so also get Goro? Me? Say what? Can you guys also get Goro on the show? I feel like that'd be a fun sure. surprise. Well, but not when Hayo's on. He would not like that. He'd have to. It's like a Dr. Phil episode. Step out. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have someone here for you. Bring out Goro. <laughs> That's when he leaves to go take a smoke. 
He doesn't come back. Not by sudden. Oh my gosh. All right. How many huge man eating parakeets out of five, Dylan? I'm going to give it four. A four? There you go. Four. I am giving it three parakeets out of five. And Ryan Mayers, what are you giving this one? Giving it four and a half. So, like four tower sized parakeets and one real world sized parakeet. <laughs> okay. Awesome. There you go. All right. So that is our discussion of The Boy and the Heron. Any other final words on Studio Ghibli as a whole, Ryan? Please bring back weird spirits with butts. We miss them. We need the butts, says Ryan Mayers. Spirits it's important. That it's important. It, it, it affects how, Goro, how we understand the movie. That's how Goro <laughs> can take up the mantle of Studio Ghibli. He can bring back the spirit butts. If you guys ever get around to watching Mononoke, let me know. Please, we'll discuss immediately after. There's, uh, Yeah, I'll text you about the butts, for sure. Yes, please do. <laughs> Absolutely. For now, that's all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. If you like the show, please give us five stars of our podcast app you're listening to. Special thank you to Ryan Mayers for coming out today and talking about Studio Ghibli and The Boy and the Heron. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Of course. And be sure to tune in next week. Have a great rest of your day.